Greetings to all of you joining us online for church this morning. A special shout out to you, Watertown, and to you, Aberdeen. Glad you guys are joining us also. I pray all is well with your soul during this time of trial as we all have to face this COVID-19 outbreak. May the peace of Jesus be in your hearts and may the peace of Jesus be something that you're ministering one to another and to those around you. Like anything in life associated with this COVID-19 outbreak has been some assumptions. Some of these assumptions have been wrong and have increased the spread of the disease. I recently went online on, on the internet and looked up the topic of assumptions. And interestingly enough, there was a list of 50 wrong assumptions that people commonly make. I want to just read 10 of those for you this morning. Uh, the first one applies, I think, directly to the situation we find ourselves in at this time uh, in the history of our nation. Number one assumption. I'm only going to give you 10 of the 50, okay? Only 10. Number one, ignore the problem and it'll go away. I think that we have seen that assumption at work in this particular area of our life right now as dealing with the coronavirus. Um, but also we see that frequently being the thought process when we're facing something we really don't want to face, we hope it just goes away. Very rarely does that happen. I love number two. Listen to this one. Rational persuasions are persuasive. Number three is this, the grass is greener on the other side. I'm sure you've heard that one frequently. Number four is this, you can balance things out by taking revenge. Number five is more money will make me happier. Number six is this, if you've seen one, you've seen them all. Number seven is all eyes are on you. And usually in life, not all eyes are on us. Number eight Everyone is having an affair. Why can't I have one? Number nine is this. Someone else will take responsibility. This one I want to camp on for just a moment. I think in a large church like ours, and in times like this, oftentimes we have the tendency to think somebody else will step up. Someone else will take responsibility. But I want to encourage you. Step into the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Take responsibility uh, for your spiritual walk. Take responsibility for discipling your children. Take responsibility for shepherding your neighborhood. Step into the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And number 10 assumption that I just want to cover with you this morning is this. We know what we're talking about. I've had a frequent interaction with people who have said, I know what I'm talking about, and myself included in this, only to not know really what I'm talking about. According to a Harvard study, 70% of assumptions are wrong. So take this moment and, and do some reflection. What wrong assumption have you made that has led you astray? What wrong assumption have you made that has led you astray? We so easily, we so easily embrace wrong assumptions. We so easily think the worst about others and this can really cause some problems. This morning, we're getting to John chapter 7. And we're going to see in this reading this morning from John chapter 7, as we continue our series uh, from the Gospel of, of John, that 
many who were interacting with Jesus were wrongly assuming some things about him that led them to a wrong conclusion, a really, really wrong conclusion that had tragic results. And so I'm going to read for you now John chapter 7, beginning with verse 25, going through verse 44. Listen for how so many that interacted with the Lord Jesus Christ wrongly assumed some things about him. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem begin to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last and the greatest day, of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. So others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. So many people present at that moment with Jesus came to a wrong conclusion because they had some wrong assumptions about him. I want to just give us a warning this morning. We need to heed this warning. We assume a lot frequently in life that often leads to wrong assumptions. Watch out for that, beloved. Watch out that you don't fall into that trap. It's easy to render judgments on people that are just inaccurate just because we really don't know. It's a human tendency. I see that done all the time. Do you see that done all the time? Do you do it? I know I have to work really hard on not doing that very kind of thing. Do you have to work really hard to not do that kind of thing? Wrong assumptions will lead to a wrong conclusion. That's our beware point this morning as we really kick off into this message. The people thought they knew where Jesus came from. They thought he came from Nazareth in Galilee. They saw him as a man. They saw him as a neighbor. They saw him as a carpenter. But they really did not know him. 
He had come from God. He had been born of a virgin. He had been heralded by the angels. He's recognized as divine. Two aged prophets in the temple courts at his circumcision declared who he was. A popular tradition at that time was that Messiah would simply just appear. This belief was just as mistaken as the one that thought Messiah would come as a military political leader who would restore the greatness of Israel. Some really struggled with these false assumptions, and it led them to not believe in Jesus. Others said, well, I don't think anybody else will ever do the miracles that this guy is doing, so we're choosing to believe in him. I want to set the record straight on some of these mistaken assumptions just for clarity's sake. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Luke chapter 2 tells us that Joseph and Mary, and she was great with child, were forced by a census to go back to his town of heritage, Bethlehem, to register for the census. And while they were there, she gave birth to Jesus Christ. This was foretold by Micah in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. By the way, this is the year of the census for us here in the United States, too. And I don't know if you've got your census form or not, but when we moved here in 2010, Vicki was still in Williston. I was here in Brookings. And we both were the lucky recipients of the big booklet. I had to do a booklet in Brookings. She had to do a booklet in Williston as part of the census. Well, we got our notification uh, today that, yay, we won our lottery again. We get to fill out the booklet again for the census. So in that time of Jesus, when he was born, Joseph and Mary were fulfilling the demands of a census, which brought him back to Bethlehem. And so Jesus' town of birth was Bethlehem. He was from the line of David. The ones who were assuming this was not true just simply weren't in the know, and they were uh, uh, believing false assumptions. People today still succumb to wrong assumptions about the Lord Jesus. Some still think he's just a man, he's just a neighbor, he's just a carpenter, there's nothing special about him. Some minimize his divinity by saying he's a good teacher or that he's just a prophet. These assumptions are still with us today. I think part of the reason why Jesus didn't even answer the question of where he was from uh, geographically was because that wasn't the important thing to address. Rather, it was from whom is what he wanted to really address. So he made this point as he was talking to the people that day, and he makes this point to us. Jesus emphasized from whom, rather where, when it came to his origins. He emphasized from whom rather than from where. And he was really emphasizing then the importance of relationship. He said to the people, yes, you know me. You know where I'm from. Now, in some versions of the Bible, there's a question mark after that because this really wasn't intended to be a statement of acknowledgement. He was saying, do you really know where I'm from? Do you really know who I am? The meaning seems to be, you think you know who I am. You think I'm a Galilean, but I am from Bethlehem. But he didn't even bother to tell them that. He was more concerned that they knew the whom rather than the where. And he said, I have not come on my own, but the one who sent me is to, and you do not know him. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. 
And so Jesus declares here his divine origin by this proclamation. And it's evident by the words that he chose to answer these folks with that he was more concerned that we know whom he was from rather than where he was from and that he was the Christ, the one sent from God. Now think about this with me. Jesus was emphasizing here the importance of relationship over facts. Oftentimes we think if people just had the facts right, if they just knew the facts about Jesus, then they would believe in him. But basically Jesus is saying here, if you know whom I'm from, that's going to be elementary to you believing in me. And so he was saying to these folks, you're hung up on the facts and you don't even have the facts right. Rather, what you should be hung up on is, whom am I from? I'm from God. And if you would believe in God, then you would believe in me. And as these people were rejecting Jesus, it was interesting to note, this is a huge insight, that they just didn't understand things. See, here's an insight we gained from the scriptures that I just read to you this morning. Unbelief renders one unable to understand. Jesus was telling them that he was going to go away from them. He'd only be with them for a short time. And they didn't understand what was going on. They, they said to themselves, to one another, is he going to the Greeks? Is he going to speak to the ones there? And they just didn't understand what in the world was going on. And we gain this insight. When you reject Jesus, that unbelief renders you unable to understand. And I, kinda, I just want to take a pause here and talk to our situation that we're facing here uh, in our country and in the world right now with this COVID-19. We as followers of Jesus Christ, we understand things that the one who doesn't follow Jesus Christ will never get. So when we made the decision this week to go online. And it was a terribly hard decision uh, to make, uh, one that I really didn't want to make. But here's what we were trying to do, and here's where we're tr- coming from with this decision. All along, we've been trying to follow the CDC regulations and saying, you know, these governing authorities, uh, we want to, we you know, be in compliance with them as much as possible unless, you know, they're asking us to do something in violation to Scripture. So when the CDC came out and said, we don't want gatherings larger than 50, and then immediately it went down to 10, we thought, well, you know what? We can comply with that. We can, we can you know, put ourselves under those governing authorities and still do church. We're just going to have to change the method. And the method you're experiencing that's been changed is this. We're going online for a season. But here, here's what I want to get at. If we chose just to meet which Some, I think, are doing, and I'm not even going to get into the discussion whether that's right or wrong. That's not my point here. But if we chose just to keep on meeting, I think it would send a message to most in our community that we don't care about their safety, that we're not loving to them and concerned about them. It wouldn't be our intended message to sending. It wouldn't be at all what we believe or or, or think, but I think it would be perceived that way. And unintentionally, what we would be doing is alienating some people that we want to be able to minister during this time. So this is a really, really difficult situation that we're facing right now. And I I just want you to be in prayer about it and understand the difficult situations that we face in our decision-making. And and so those who, who don't know Jesus, 
they're, they're going to be unable to understand some of the things that we would do you know, in the name of faith. So as much as possible, what we want to do is, is do church in, in a way where we're still doing church and the methods change, but also do it in such a way that we can still minister to the people out there that need to know Jesus during this time. So I just thought I would explain that. Um, and I know there are a lot of different opinions on it, and everybody has good, good reasoning. I'm not even going to get into that. I, I just want you to know what we're thinking and why we're doing church online uh, this way. And I, I just think this is a grand opportunity for you to, uh, to step out of maybe some comfort zones and out of some familiarity and just say, God, what do you want me to do in this time? And how do you want me to follow you? And so I think for all of us, this is an opportunity maybe to stretch and to trust God a little bit more and to really step into the calling he has on all of us to be the priesthood and to shepherd our families and our neighborhoods and all the things that Aaron said so well at the beginning of the message. So the big question that's being talked about here in, 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 in regard to the scripture that I re- just read to you is this. Is Jesus the Christ? So we're so used to the title Jesus Christ that we don't realize the significance of the title Christ being associated with, with Jesus. And these people were asking, is this particular Jesus, is this the one? Is he the Christ? Some believe because of the miracles, and as we read this morning, some did not believe because of wrong assumptions I just talked about. Let's talk on names for a moment. Jesus in his day would have had the Hebrew name Yeshua bar Joseph or Yeshua bar Yosef. Try to say it Hebrew, I can't. But it means it's Jesus, son of Joseph. So um, it would have been Yeshua, uh, Yeshua bar Yosef. Um, I'm still butchering it, and I'll tell Kyle maybe to just leave this in there so you can see that I can mess up stuff really well. Anyway, when he was out of town, he would have been called Jesus, son of Joseph of Nazareth. Jesus was a really common name at that time. It's like Mike or Joe or Steve or Dave in our times. And the name Jesus is profound in its meaning. It means Yahweh saves. And we know that when the angel visited Mary and was talking about the Holy Spirit coming upon her and her conceiving uh, a son, that she was to name him Jesus. And the angel went on to say that he would save people from their sins. I've told this story before, but it bears repetition. Vicki and I uh, were unable to conceive and have children when we were first married, so we took some fertility drugs, and immediately we had Elizabeth and then Brianna. And then at that point, we decided maybe we should stop these fertility drugs, as good as they are, praise God, uh, for medicine and for some of the solutions and stuff it provides, uh, we thought we'd go off it and just trust God at that point. Not that we weren't trusting God already, but you get the flow of what I'm talking about. And we went off the medicine, uh, the fertility drugs, and for five years, five years, nothing happened. And so then we decided, let's, let's get this drug again. We're not getting any younger, and if we want to have more children, we better you know, help the process along a little if we can. 
And right at the last moment, she decided after getting those drugs, we're not going to do this. And she flushed them down the toilet. And I agreed with her. Well, it was just right after that that our son was conceived, our third-born child. And we named him Nathaniel, meaning gift of God. And every time I look at Nathaniel today, I think, you're a gift of God. Our God's a miracle-working God. Then we named our fourth child Lydia. And it was interesting because Lydia was born with some respiratory problems. And the word Lydia, the name Lydia means worker of purple. And she was born with these respiratory problems, and she turned purple. And I remember thinking, as this was transpiring, and there was a whole bunch of nurses working on her and trying to resuscitate her and all that kind of thing, that, wow, we named her Lydia. How ironic is that? And here she is, my little girl, laying here just as purple as can be. I think names matter a lot. Names are significant. And so Jesus has this name. Jesus meaning Yahweh saves. God saves. So now the debate was, is this particular Jesus, is this particular Jesus the Christ? Does he have that title also? The title Christ means anointed one, one who redeems. So the question being asked here in particular is this Jesus who's standing in our midst doing all these miracles, is this Jesus who so many of us think wrongly is, you know, from Galilee, from Nazareth, is this Jesus the Christ? And unfortunately, those who assumed wrong assumptions on, you know, the GL geography of Christ and where he was born and all that kind of thing, they were so resistant to the fact that he was the Christ, which he is, he is the Christ, that they missed the biggest imitation of all time. Here it is. Whoever comes to Jesus and believes in him, streams of living water will flow from within him or her. And John immediately after this is recorded, clarifies what is meant by this is that Jesus' followers would be filled with the person of the Holy Spirit and streams of living water would flow from within them, from the person of the Holy Spirit. And I want to back up and talk to you on this invitation for just a a moment because, man, the context of it is really, really enlightening. This invitation by Jesus was given on the last and the greatest day of the Feast of the Tabernacles. This was the climax day of that particular feast. And during the Feast of the Tabernacles, the Jews celebrated the memory of how God protected their ancestors and their travels through the wilderness to the promised land, guiding them on the way, providing manna for them to eat supernaturally. And on one occasion, he even provided water from a rock. So on the first day of the feast, the priest would read Zechariah chapter 14, Verse 8, this priest, by the way, or this um, feast, by the way, lasted eight days. And on the first day of the feast, the priest read Zechariah 14, verse 8, and said, On that day, living water will flow out of Jerusalem. And every day during the feast, except the last day, except the last and the greatest day of the feast, a priest would stand in front of the temple with a golden pitcher, and he would pour some water, he would pour some water on a rock, 
pour some water on a rock, commemorating, commemorating and remembering that God gave the Israelites water from a rock to sustain them when they were thirsty. And the people would stand around and they would chant, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. It was a very, very symbolic and kind of memorial type of of, uh, tradition. And they performed this ceremony seven days, the first seven days of the Feast of the Tabernacle. But then on the eighth day, on the eighth day, they would no longer do the pouring of water on the rock, remembering that God had provided for their thirst in a supernatural way. And they felt on the eighth day a need to pray for rain on the land so that the crops would come. And in doing so, they unintentionally would divert their attention from this yet unfulfilled promise for living water to come to them. And it was though they were doing on the eighth day just this kind of thing, kind of shrugging their shoulders. They say, well, you know, we've done our spiritual thing for seven days. Now we have to get back to reality, and we need rain so our crops can grow and our crops can mature. And they kind of diverted their attention uh, to this promise that was not yet fulfilled and not yet had really transpired. Uh, yet, yet it was memorializing what had happened, but it was also pointing to what would take place And they just kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, it's time to get back to reality of life and back to farming and, you know, sustaining our our livelihood. So let's pray for rain to come on the land. And at this day, when they didn't pour the pitcher of water on the rock, on this day, when they were diverting their attention to rain and needing rain to, to, you know, make a living, so to speak, that's the day that Jesus stood up and he said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, Rivers of living water will flow from within them. It's so ironic, it's so significant that on that eighth day when they, you know, kind of backed away from this really, really cool tradition, this cool ceremony, and we're kind of saying we're going to get back to the reality of life. It's on that very day, Jesus said, I am the reality of life. I am the fulfillment of what you've been just chanting. I am the one from whom springs up this well of salvation, this living water. So get this flow of John chapter 7. Just get this overall flow of this scripture that I read to you today. Unbelievers who had these strong assumptions were coming to this wrong conclusion about Jesus. They missed the revelation that Jesus was and is the Christ. Their unbelief made them unable to understand what he was saying, and they missed out on this big invitation to come to him and to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that living water could flow from within them. In our day and age, I think a lot of people consider neutrality as a sign of maturity and objectivity. And so when they look at someone like Jesus, they, they, they take this position towards Jesus that, well, I really don't know if he is who he says he is or if he is not, you know, that person uh, or whatever be the case. 
uh, but I'm choosing to just be objective and, and not really take this too serious, or whatever the language you would want to use there would be. But get this, it may be popular, and people may feel smart when they say, well, I don't know if I really think Jesus is the Christ. Uh, I don't know if we really have a need for him or not. That may be popular, and that may be by some uh, considered you know, an intellectual, but Jesus did not allow this kind of indecision. He confronted with the choice of belief or unbelief. And those who remain undecided, he simply says, you're opposed to me. And so I would encourage you this morning to, to, to listen to this. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Come to him, you who are thirsty. And he will produce in you living waters that flow from the person of the Holy Spirit living in you. We're living in times, I think, that are stripping us down. They're taking away things. They're, you know, full of anxiety. They're full of the unknown right now. And we're being forced to simplify, to stay at home a lot more, to be quarantined. And, and um, I had to laugh. My oldest grand, granddaughter sent out, you know, a plea of help. I don't know what to do. I'm bored. I have all this time. And all the, all the relatives were chiming in on giving her suggestions on what to do and how to fill the time. And, but, but what's going on is we're being stripped down right now to bare essentials. And it's time for us to understand the opportunity we have to declare that Jesus is the Christ to ourselves and to those around us. In the late 1990s, uh, a man named Matt Redman, uh, who authored in and wrote many, many uh, worship songs along with his, his uh, band, uh, was, uh, was going through some things in his home church in Watford. They were going through a spiritually tough time in the late 1990s. And at the same time, the band's musical creativity was on a high, just impacting the church uh, nationwide and worldwide in great ways, yet there was a missing dynamic in his home church. So the pastor did a pretty brave thing, Matt said. He asked the congregation, what are you bringing to worship? Or are you just here soaking up the music? His point was that the band and the church had lost their way in connection with Jesus and worship, and the only solution was to strip away this diversion and distraction And that would mean that they would shut down the entire sound system and the worship band for a season. Then the music faded, according to Matt Redman. And initially, Matt remembers, unplugging just led to this embarrassing silence. But eventually, people found their voices. And they began to offer up heartfelt prayers and encountering God God in a fresh, new way. And by the time they felt sufficiently ready to reintroduce the musicians and sound system, the church had found a new perspective on worship. That's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And at this time, Redmond wrote a song that I think a lot of us know. The song is the heart of worship. Listen to this verse. When the music fades, all is stripped away, and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you, Jesus. 
It's all about you. We're living in times that are stripping us down, that are taking away distractions, things that used to occupy our minds and, and you know, fill us with uh, you know, busyness are kind of being removed. And I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing. And I want to encourage you when all is stripped away, when you're sitting at home, wondering about things and, 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 and just reflecting on what's going on, would you just turn your heart to God and say, you know what, God, I acknowledge this is all about Jesus. My life is all about you, Jesus. You are the Christ. And from you, streams of living water will flow from within me. Would you just allow these times to strip you down to that thought process? At this time, Pastor Kyle and the worship band are going to lead us in singing the song, Heart of Worship. And I encourage you at home to sing out with this and to use this as a time of connecting with the Lord and use it as a time of worshiping Him and declaring to Him. When everything is falling down around me, when everything's being stripped down around me, Jesus, it's all about you. It's all about you.
Praise God, that was a great song, wasn't it? And I pray that it touched your heart. I want to encourage you um, to do some further study and further discussion at home, like Pastor Aaron talked about at the beginning of the message. We provided you with five questions discussion questions uh, to do together. We're calling this together at home, discipling with family and friends. And these questions are, 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 can be found by going to our webpage and going to the, uh, the bulletin there and going to the note guide. And you can look at them and linger on them uh, there for as long as you would like to. But I just want to talk on a couple of these and maybe how to approach this. The first question says, what are some wrong assumptions that lead people astray? What is a wrong assumption you made and how did it impact you? I'd encourage you to share that with one another and talk honestly. But then you, if you notice, at, at the bottom of, of this first question is uh, a suggestion uh, for you to disciple your children. Talk to your children about what an assumption is. They may not know what an assumption is depending on their age or how they work. Give them some examples and why it can lead to trouble. Use this as an opportunity to teach your child in the way they should go so when they're old, they'll not depart from it. You know, just teach them along the way in general. Just just use this kind of thing, I I pray, as an aid um, to facilitate some family time of good discussion. And all the questions are like that. There's there's five of them uh, like this. And three of the questions, Three of the questions have a suggestion for you um, to include uh, children if that be the case you find yourself in. Uh, On that last question, question number five, I I made a a point of if you're walking around town and you see streams flowing all over, and this time of year we see streams everywhere. We're in the melt season. Uh, Tell your kids, doesn't that remind you that we're promised as we give our life to Jesus that streams of living water will flow from us. It's like it is here right now. All these streams of living water will be flowing from from God's people. Use that kind of as a tangible, maybe object lesson and and to help them get uh, what we're talking about and what you're talking about uh, in in this particular uh, message. Um, By the way, I want to encourage you as you go out as a believer, declaring that Jesus is the Christ, streams of living water should flow from you that basically wet the people around you, that they run into Christ in you. I just, I see that picture and I pray that you see that picture and that you uh, have a lot of uh, discussion on this and interaction with one another, spurring each other on in this regard to good works, okay? So uh, we're gonna pray now. Would you bow your heads, please? God, I, I, I just pray for this uh, group of people here online with us uh, this day. And I, I just pray, first of all, that, uh, oh boy, Lord, that we wouldn't be ones who are susceptible to wrong assumptions that would lead us astray. Help us be grounded in your word, grounded in your ways, filled with the person of the Holy Spirit, Lord. And I want to pray that we'd be governed by the Holy Spirit. God, forgive us for the many times that we do jump to wrong conclusions based on something we assumed, Lord, that wasn't correct especially when it comes to our treatment of one another and others in general, Lord. Sometimes we just assume things about people that once we get to know them was entirely incorrect. And so I pray you give us a gentle spirit, one to each other, that we're filled with the Holy Spirit, 
that we're slow to jump to conclusions that are in error. And Lord, I want to pray that during these times that are filled with anxiety and fear for so many people, that we indeed would be the people of God who know that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus, you're Yahweh who saves. You're the anointed one, our redeemer. We trust in you who and what shall we fear then? So I pray that you would come upon us in a strong way, Lord Jesus, and fill us anew with the Holy Spirit that we could be used by you in these times that are troubling so many. And would you give us patient endurance, Lord? I know my tendency is to want this thing just to pass super quickly. And I just don't see that happening, Lord. Would you help us to understand how to reside in you and push towards you in the right direction over a long haul, even when things are really hard, Lord? Would you grace us that way? And Lord, I want to just pray that you would <sighs> embolden and give courage to some of us who will, for the first time in our lives, maybe have to step more into this priesthood of Jesus, to shepherding our families, to discipling our children, to maybe shepherding our neighborhoods, Lord. Uh, man, for some of us, this is new territory. This is really a, a, different, uh, a different kind of thing, Lord. And I just pray for your grace, to be honest, for your power to fill us, and for your church to be your church, Lord. I pray for parents Man, I pray for them to disciple their kids and to take that calling seriously, Lord. It doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be, let's sit down now and have this huge, long, huge, long theological talk. It's, it's just teaching them and as you go along the way. It's, it's pulling you, God, into the midst of what we're doing day by day and acknowledging you frequently and calling our kids uh, to awareness of you, Lord. So I just pray for, for such ones, Lord, that you would just grace them and, and encourage them. Uh, Lord, I pray for us to be on the hunt to do good, to be looking for those around us who are struggling and to do good works for them, to help them, Lord, because we know that good works produces your goodwill in them, Lord. And I think, and I honestly believe that at some point that, that goodwill will stir up a heart to receive the good news. So would you just move on us mightily, Lord, as we go out and about our business this week, Lord, and probably not about around town that much, actually, but, but God, wherever we find ourselves, whether at home or in the neighborhood or visiting with a friend or a neighbor, would you just season us, Lord, Lord, with your wisdom, and may we declare the wonderful works of you to all those around us, Lord, for your glory and for the furtherance of your kingdom. God, just uh, be a hedge of protection around all our people. Be a hedge of protection around our nation. We pray for the leadership of our nation, for wisdom and making decisions, Lord, and taking steps of action. We pray for those who have suffered loss of loved ones. So many are dying, Lord, whether it be from the, the COVID-19 or influenza, whatever. It's just, man, I heard of a few personal stories today that just broke my heart. And I just pray for ones who are feeling the loss of a loved one right now, Lord, and in a very real way, would you comfort them and gird them up, Lord? And God, I just pray for uh, for our nation to turn to you in true repentance and to turn to you and rend our robes, Lord, so to speak, and rend our hearts and declare where we need you more than we ever realized, Lord. And we acknowledge that now and we plead on behalf of our nation and the world right now, Lord, for you to show mercy and for you to intervene and for you to send healing. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. We declare today you are the Christ 
and from you will come streams of living water within us. Thank you, Jesus. We love you in your name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Watertown, Aberdeen, you're always on our hearts. We love you guys. You too have a great week. Go be safe, be clean, but be of good courage and be bold. God bless you.